Um, I'm going to finish my uh, series that I've called A a Time to Heal, and um, today's, I want to talk about, I want to finish with kind of looking at Ezra as a whole, and there were a few, so you'll see this sermon is kind of still under construction. I'm still, there's like my brain picked up on some categories when I read through Ezra. And what I want to do today is kind of bring those categories together. And I've called this Discover Your Spiritual Edge. And it has to do with looking at what the ancient people in the book of Ezra did sort of, um, it was just like a second nature to them. Uh, they responded to certain things that we deal with uh, today. And, and we can look at how they just naturally, res- instinctively, they instinctively, they instinctively did these things in these situations, and it seemed to give them an edge, because Ezra is a book about rebuilding. The, the, the people in Ezra, the Israelites, were rebuilding their nation in this unique moment, and we can observe some of their instinctive behaviors and, uh, and, and why they did it, and then we can maybe replicate that as we deal with the same kind of situations that, that they dealt with then, if that makes any sense. So it's kind of like, like you can look at athletes. There are things that athletes do that gave them their edge, and I'm always fascinated by uh, stories like that. Like they say Kyrie Irving, uh, his dad, when he was growing up, his dad would put plastic bags on his hands, on Kyrie's hands, and little Kyrie would have to dribble with bags on his hands. So that then after hours of dribbling with bags on his hands, when he had bare hands, it was seemed pretty easy. And if you've ever seen Kyrie live dribble, like maybe you've been close to the court of the Cavs game, and you can't really appreciate it until you've seen it live close up. It's otherworldly how he handles the ball. Or um, they say that uh, Kobe, Kobe had Nike shave a few millimeters, a few millimeters off of the soles of his feet, not not the soles of his feet. It's very painful, but worth it. off the soles of his shoes because he believed that that quickened his response time by a fraction of a second. Fraction of a second. that's, That's the little details that just gave him that competitive edge. Or they, they say Larry Bird before games. Uh, one of his routines before the game was to dribble up and down every square inch of the court to look for any imperfection, maybe a little pop nail or a board that was a little bit warped, so that if the game was on the line, he would know that there was any potential variable, you know, just a a habit that gave him a little bit of an edge. Um, My my friend Frank Mancini has worked for the Indians for years and years in the clubhouse, and uh, one of the things he notices is that uh, oftentimes uh, the, the middle infield, second base, um, shortstop, even third baseman, the, the disproportionate number of Latinos uh, that, that get those positions in the pros. And, and one of the things that he's learned is that those kids grew up in play, playing ball on like rocky, um, unkept fields. So they've taken hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of hours of ground balls on rocky, dirt, patch fields so that when they get a nicely manicured field over here, it's like easy. So when my, 
when Frank takes my boys to, to practice uh, fielding with them and his own son, he'll always find a field that's not been manicured so that it, and he'll, he'll put safety glasses on them and just rocket ground balls to them so that when they get to a manicured game, it's, it's simple. And so you, little stories like that where you learn about habits that people um, live out and then it benefits them. Well, so I'm 43 for another week. I'm hanging on. Um, I'm not really looking to increase my, my, my reaction time on the court or, you know, more effective ground ball fielding for when I return to Polaris softball one of these days. I don't need that. Um, but anything that I could get in, like, my spirit, the spiritual realm, my spiritual life, any edge that I could get there, or specifically, um, there are a few things like uh, grief, negative emotions, or guilt that I know a lot of us struggle with, or, um, or fear. Like what we're going to see is that these ancient Israelites in the book of Ezra, they had some habits, they had some responses that were uh, sort of second nature. They instinctively did some things in, in, in those realms. Like that's useful for me. And so what I want to do is kind of walk through uh, what we see the Israelites doing with some of those uh, um, situations in life, and maybe then we can apply it to our own life and do some of the things that they did, and it'll make a difference when we deal with our own uh, grief or guilt or fear. Okay, so does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Um, not that you can do anything if it doesn't, because I'm just going to keep going. And So just so we're all up to speed, uh, Ezra is a story of... The Israelites getting the opportunity to rebuild. Uh, they had been basically uh, kicked out of their own land and exiled 70 years prior uh, to, to Babylon. It's called the, the Babylonian exile or Babylonian captivity or, or whatever. Um, and so for 70 years, Jerusalem lay in ruin. And now Ezra is going to lead the Israelites back from, from the permission of the Babylonian king uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild. So this is sort of what's going on while they're rebuilding. That's the book of Ezra. So um, let's, let's talk, first of all, about grief and negative emotions. We're going to look at how they instinctively responded to grief, negative emotions, sadness. Um, we're going to look at what they naturally did. And it's observable a few different places in the book of Ezra and throughout the entire scripture, really. It's fairly consistent how the people of God responded in times of grief. So here we go. Um, this is from Ezra chapter 3. They're headed back to rebuild in Jerusalem, and we read this. With praise and thanksgiving... They sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping 
Because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. So we have this situation, it's just like this hot mess of humanity, and people are screaming for joy, and people are wailing in despair as the temple, the central sort of symbol of everything that it meant for Israel to have their relationship with their God and their, their presence established in Jerusalem. See, one of the things I learned 10 years ago when I went to Israel uh, for a couple of weeks probably the, the, the thing that stood out the most, even to this day, those people love their land. Like they are in love with their land. And by that I mean like, like Americans, like we love America, but I think it's more the, the idea of America that we're proud of. And they, they love the soil of their land. Their land to them is like a spouse or a child. And that's why the, the, so much of the conflict over there, um, the, the borders and boundaries and things like that, they love their land like we love our family. And so baked into this whole story is this understanding that's probably harder for us to get as Americans with a relatively young country. Um, when, when they were forced to leave Jerusalem and Jerusalem lay in ruin, and, and they had to go into captivity in, in a foreign land and mix with... That was devastating. That was, that was like they were separated from their children or something like that. Okay? And, and, and here we get this moment when now they're allowed back. And there's all kinds of emotions and expressions of, of, of the devastation. This is like one of those benchmark moments. And, and what, we, what we see here is that they get it out. They let it out. That's how they respond to the tension, to the stress, to the sadness, to the grief that had been pent up for 70 years. There is wild expression of emotion throughout the book of Ezra. People um, instinctively, instinctively expressed their emotion, which isn't always the case for us. That's, that's the first thing is, and we're going to talk about how to apply some of this in our life, but I want you to just see, first of all, an overview is, in Ezra, we see when there's negative emotion and stress, the people of God instinctively express, they came out with it, they were out with their emotion. And just, you know, this was done, this moment was under, the, under Ezra's leadership, so I think what we can say is that this is something that is seen as a good thing, okay? All right, so let's look at another common battle in the book of Ezra that, that a lot of us deal with, and that's guilt. I know a lot of you struggle with, with personal guilt. Okay, here's what we read in Ezra 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, 
We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now remember we said that it wasn't about interracial marriage. It was the fact that they intermarried faiths. Like very different faith beliefs. They, they intermarried. And so that's what, that's what they're confessing. But what I want you to see here is that <clears throat> they instinctively confess their sins out loud to God and to each other. Sin was a big deal to them, and they instinctively confessed it, and at the same time reaffirmed God's vision for them. So he says there's still hope for Israel. So they confessed, and then they affirmed their identity. But that's what I want want you to see, is that in their guilt... They instinctively confessed it. And so I, I have a backstory to, to, to today and to next week. I've spent the past, I don't know, seven or eight months spending a lot of extra time studying how the first Christians, um, their habits, their disciplines, and, and one of the things that stands out through the Old Testament and in the early church, confession to each other, and with emotion before God, was a regular part of their life. And it's probably something that that we've gotten away from these days. So that's just just something to observe there, is that when they had guilt, they came out with it and expressed it and confessed it to God, while at the same time reaffirming... um, what was true about God's love for them. Okay, so they never lost sight of their sin, but they also never lost sight of God's love for them. All right, let's look at one more, um, one more thing here, and that is fear. Now, this is a neat account in the book of Ezra. I think this is my favorite moment in Ezra, and this is why I love Scripture. This, this is the kind of thing that, um, that I... Um, it, it helps me... It reaffirms the, the truth of Scripture, the authentic nature of Scripture. So I want to read it, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. This, this is dealing with fear, emotion, anxiety. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast, so that we, may, we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed, and here's where it gets good. I was ashamed to ask the king, this pagan king far from God, for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted, and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Now look at what's baked into this. The problem on the table is, Ezra has petitioned, he's requested the king, this this pagan king, who is far from God, he said, we want to go back and rebuild our temple, will you help us, will you let us? The king says, yes, and here's some supplies. 
And then Ezra amps up, and he's like, good, because, you know, God is with those who are with him, and he's against those who are against him, and, you know, he's all, he gives this great speech, and the king's like, yeah, here's a bunch of stuff. Go do your thing. Now, the night before, Ezra's like, okay, what if we get attacked and robbed of all our stuff that this king's given us when we're on our way back to rebuild? And he gets nervous about this, and he's like, I can't really ask for a military envoy when I'm on this mission from God, and I'm afraid that I'm going to get jumped and all our stuff's taken. It's going to look really bad, but it's also going to look bad when I've just told this king how mighty our God is. And like you, you, most ancient works make their heroes look good. This is... This is um, uh, detailing a very real struggle, and it's unnecessary because they could have just been like when they're writing history. Yeah, we knew God would protect us, and he did. But instead, they're talking about the stress, and so you see this like this late night, no sleep, back and forth, and Ezra's had this dilemma he has. What if we get robbed with the stuff that the king gave us, but I can't ask for protection because it's going to look bad? Like, isn't that just a real authentic kind of struggle like we might have? What does Ezra instinctively do? He fasts. He fasts. And what we see throughout the scriptures is fasting was an ancient part of life. It was a regular part of ancient life, especially in times of fear and anxiety. It was just something, it's just what, what, do you, what do you do when there's an emergency? You fast. So, okay, we'll get back to that in a minute. What I want to do now is talk through each of those three things. We have bad emotions, we have guilt, and we have fear. And then we saw what the ancients did, and so now I want to talk about um, how we can maybe apply that to our life today, okay? So, first of all, let's talk about negative emotions uh, grief, sadness, and, and finding ways to express that. And in this country, we're not all that great generally at that. Like you see footage of other countries, and they're like, you, like you, you see a funeral, they're, they're carrying the coffin through the streets, people are wailing, tearing their clothes, they're pounding on the casket, they're pounding on the ground, they are fully expressing their sadness. And what do we say when we're reading a eulogy of a loved one and we start to tear up a little bit? What do we do? We apologize. Sorry. Right? I mean, that, like that's, that's coming from this, this, this feeling like you're not supposed to be overwhelmed by emotion, whereas in other cultures, they are, they're punching the casket and you know, throwing stuff and wailing for days. So, just two examples today, and I'm going to get back to both of these a little bit next week. <clears throat> um, notice what they did, and there's a big disclaimer coming your way from me in this one. They were very expressive in their worship. One of the ways that they dealt with their troubling emotions is that in corporate worship, they cried out in praise. They cried out in agony. They got loud in corporate expression in worship. Okay? Now, full disclosure. 
this is not my pathway. But I can't, like, like so, so because it's not my pathway personally, I find myself not talking much about it. But the problem with that is, for a lot of people, including like my wife, it is very, my wife was a singer up here, if you're new, the, the singer up here. Um, if, if you're newer to Polaris, that's my wife Kelly. Worship is her pathway. And for many of you, worship is a pathway. It's the it's like recharges your batteries and recharges your emotions and, and gets you ready for the next week. And, and, and so it might be your pathway and you don't even know it. Again, for me, the worship experience is not all that moving for me largely because I'm thinking about like my intro uh, up like my the what do I need to announce? What do I need to say at the beginning of my sermon? Who did I meet in the lobby? Uh, what prayer request did I get in the morning with interacting with people? Like I, it's just not a good environment for me in terms of connection and expression. Other guy like like Dave, our youth pastor, Marcus, our worship pastor, very expressive in worship. That's great. And and so what I want to say is, it could be your pathway, and you don't even know it. So feel free to try it. Because I know, I remember when, when my, um, I'm having issues here, sorry. When, um, when my family, like I was in, I grew up in, a, in an old school traditional church with organ music and like stoic worship. And then we went, when I was in high school, to uh, the church that we were, would, would make the move to, um, with worship much more like Polaris. Like it wasn't, you know, vineyard style, like highly expressive worship. But it was, there were people who, like, like I, I remember our first Sunday, we almost didn't make it like at that church. Because our first Sunday, there was a woman up front singing, leading, and she did this when she sang. I mean, it was like she was really singing to God or something. Imagine that. And we were like, that weirdo. Like, we were like, look, she just wants to be seen. She just, it's all just a show. Because we had no category for that. When the truth is, when you look at what they did in Scripture, like, like she was just worshiping God. She was expressive. And her tank was being filled. And, and, and her emotions were being healed and dealt with while she expressed. And, and so what I want to say is, like, like, there is real value in that. It may be your pathway, it may not be, but you should consider it because for some of you, you're, you're going to give that a shot and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. You're going to be like people that have that pathway, they, they use the term throne room. Like it's like they're, like they're transported to the throne room of God as they express their hearts in worship. So that's one of the things that we see that they instinctively did in Ezra. They, they, it was so loud that it could be heard from far away. That was a pathway for them to get their emotions out. And another one is the opposite. And this is more my pathway. And that's internal, silence, journal, find ways to drum up what's going on down deep. I'm a huge advocate a couple times a month to just sit and write everything you love about your life and everything you hate about your life and read it and tell yourself, no matter the distraction, I am going to be fully aware of everything I hate about my life 
and everything I love about my life. And that has done a lot for my soul. Just not pushing things down, but rather drumming things up. <clears throat> and then the other habit that has been huge for me, and again, I'll talk about this more next week, is um, I don't want to call it meditation because it's prayer, but it's silence in the presence of God, and the silence is the prayer. Like, I am the prayer. Just silence in the presence of God. And this was a very important practice in the early church. Complete silence in the presence of God. And there in that silence, oftentimes, things will bubble to the surface. And all be some negative interaction that I had while I was driving or some bad conversation I had with somebody a couple weeks ago that I don't even really remember will, will bubble to the surface in that time of silent meditation. It becomes a way for me to be sure that I'm not holding anything back, but rather it's all coming out. But that's one of the things that you see in Scripture is that they are out with their emotions. They don't suppress things, they deal with things, and they deal with things on a real level. So, when it comes to, to grief and negative emotions, find ways to get it out. Two ways to consider are expressive worship and um, I, journaling, meditative prayer, that kind of a thing. So that's ways that you could put in action the instinctive behavior in the book of Ezra um, as far as grief and negative emotions go. Now, in terms of guilt, um, confession, which is a scary word for a lot of people. Um, now, uh, because Polaris has such a high volume of, of Catholics, um, confession is something you're at least familiar with, um, and you may or may not react emotionally to that, but that's one of those things where confession not necessarily just to a priest, but to each other and to God, was a regular part of ancient Christian life. It helped them deal with guilt, bringing it out. John says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and will forgive us and cleanse us. James associates confession with healing physically. He says this, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So here's the question for you. Do you have anybody in your life that you confess your sins to? Or is it completely private? Because the ancient Christians, and clearly the people of Ezra, had no problem confessing their sins outwardly to other people. We need people that we could go to every now and then. And I'm not talking about becoming hyper-focused on, like they say Martin Luther would like stand in line, confess his sins to a priest, then go to the end of the line and wait in line and confess his sins that he committed while in line. And like that, he irritated the priest because he was like overly focused on his own sin. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about a regular habit of talking with God about your sins, confessing them, and other followers of Jesus. Somebody that you can go to and say, man, I'm struggling with this, I did this, I'm, I'm upset with myself for doing this, I'm going to try this to do that better. 
that that was a regular, and maybe some of you are crippled with guilt because you don't have the practice of confession built into your spiritual habits. So just something to think about. Who could you trust to invite into your world to confess sin to? And now part of it is just some of you might be more like you need to admit that you have sin. Like if pride's a thing and there's a humility, there's a big time humility to confessing your shortcomings to other people. But it's an important practice that we observed in Ezra. It's how they dealt with guilt. And guilt, I know, is crippling for a lot of people. So now let's talk about the last one. Let's talk about the biggie. The one, the big scary... <coughs> when it came to fear and anxiety, which is, I know, a huge part of... Um, a huge difficulty for a lot of people these days. They combated that with fasting. They combated that with fasting. And like I said, over the past seven, eight months, I've spent a lot of time looking at ancient Christian writings through the first centuries. Fasting was a normal practice in the lifeblood of uh, not only Jews around the time of Jesus, we also see it long before Jesus in the book of Ezra, but the ancient Christians, they fasted. Most of them fasted two days a week. So let me, let me just kind of crack this open a little bit for you. Um, and it's some, this is something I've experimented with myself over the past couple months. And, and it's, I'm, I'm realizing, I feel like I've unlocked something huge that I never really have messed with <clears throat> that much before. Generally speaking, there were two categories for fasting. There was like the emergency break glass in case of emergency fast, like we saw in Ezra, where he's like, what am I going to do about this? I better fast because I really need God to come through. Like there was that kind of a fast. And then there was just a spiritual discipline, considered a spiritual workout kind of fast, okay? Now, I think it's most helpful for us to think in terms of, of workout versus vow. Because fasting is big and scary at, the, at first, and you can think like, what if I can't make it and I eat? Is God going to, you know, am I going to go to hell because I tried to fast and I didn't? Or is God going to, seven years of bad luck because I, no. Fast for a spiritual workout, and then when you can't make it, it's just like, you know, you're just robbed of the workout. It's like, you know, when you want to go to the gym and you, after the first five minutes, you're like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And you go to McDonald's instead. Okay? You're robbed of the workout, but you're not like, it's not crippling. So, first of all that, so let's just, just you can fast. Okay? In terms of, of how it played out, there were certainly examples where people just didn't eat for long periods of time. Okay, but that wasn't as prevalent as other kinds of fasts. In the first century, Christians, to discipline themselves, they would scale back. So like there were two ancient monks talking to each other, and one said, I'm thinking about a fast where I eat a loaf of bread every other day. I eat Tuesday, I don't eat Wednesday, I eat Thursday, and the... The mentor uh, said, well, instead, why don't you have half a loaf of bread every day? 
So the idea wasn't to rob yourself of all food and be miserable. The idea was to scale back, to have a couple days a week where you keep your, they called it their passions, where you keep your urges in line. It was discipline. You were disciplining your body and your soul so that you were prepared for temptation and to remind yourself that it's not all about how much we can consume. So when you think fast, think first about scaling back. Like an ancient Christian on, on Wednesday and Friday, typically for them, I don't think the days matter that much, but they would take those two days and they would have bread, no olive oil to dip it in, and um, vegetables and fruit. And no meat, no fish, no, you know, anything like that. But they, they would take two days where they scaled back. They didn't make themselves miserable, but they scaled back. And that was two days a week. And, and that was a discipline in their life that they felt connected them with God and helped them realize that they didn't really need a lot of the things that they felt that they need. Then every now and then, <clears throat> there would be an extra special season of life where they needed to do a real fast like for a big deal problem that they were facing. And oftentimes those came from sundown to sundown. So they would eat a meal and then not eat a meal all day until sundown. So it wasn't like they're going a full waking day without food. And they would do that. Sometimes they would do that for multiple days. But they would do that as an extra, like, like sort of amped up way to invite God into a problem. Like that was their God, please do something. Now, just personally, there have been a few times in my life when I have done that, and, and I go like sundown to sundown, uh, or, or um, actually I usually do like dinner to dinner so that it doesn't, interfere, it doesn't interfere with family life. It doesn't like, for the most part, nobody has to, you know, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm fasting today. I can't eat dinner with, you know, whatever. It doesn't do that kind of a thing. But here's what I find. First of all, you absolutely can do it. Unless there's some kind of a medical thing, you absolutely can do it. But I would find when I got into a few weeks of doing that, that I felt a need for it. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I need, I need, spiritually speaking, I need, I need that. Very much like a workout. If you get into a rhythm of workout, you're like, oh, I need, I need to get to the gym or I need to go for a run or a bike or whatever. So... Those are, through those fasts, you do feel an extra awareness of God's presence. And the two times that I've gone without food in a fast, I could point to above and beyond ways that I felt God responded. Um... Bottom line is, I can tell fasting works. Fasting works. So, what I would want is, and you'll hear more about this because I'm getting more confident to share some of this stuff as I search more in the ancient world and understand how it. You can fast, and it should be on your radar. If you follow Jesus, Jesus said, When I'm gone, my followers will fast. So you absolutely can if you think of it not as going without food, but as scaling back. And it should at least be on your radar because the benefits of it in Scripture are too great to write it off as just something, ah, oh, I can't do that. 
So just be open to fasting. And if you want to, here's where I'll leave it, is if you want to talk more about how that played out in the ancient world, um, just come find me, email me, whatever, and I'll talk with you more about you know, my experience and um, some of the things that the ancient Christians did. It was a big deal for me to realize, oh, they didn't fast by going without food for morning, noon, and night. They had some bread and some fruit, and that was their fast. And, and then it's like, oh, I could do that. So um, just, again, the purpose of this message was there are certain behaviors in the book of Ezra that we saw the people instinctively do for things like bad emotions and guilt and fear, and it gave them an edge. And if we can start to do some of those things in our own life, maybe we'll find the same kind of edge that they found. So I hope that makes sense, and I hope you took some things away that maybe you could um, consider in your own life. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the uh, endless gems that we can mine for. Um, Thank you for showing us things that we can do to cope with the difficulties in our everyday life. And these were things that people really did that really brought them closer to you and really got them through difficult times. And so we're not here without hope or without guidance. Um, You are generous in giving us guidance. And so I pray that if there's any of these habits that that they did that would help us, pathways for us to um, gain ground spiritually, uh, that you would open our eyes and um, give us the desire and the courage to, to do those things in our own life. In Jesus' name, amen.